Blog Talk Radio. by John MacArthur, pastor, author, and the Bible teacher with Grace to You. If you've never contacted Grace to You, we want to send you a free booklet by John called Found, God's Peace. It's all about helping you defeat anxiety and know true lasting contentment. Request your free booklet by writing to peace at gty.org. That's peace, P-E-A-C-E, at gty.org. Offer good in North America and Europe through December 2017. And now, unleashing God's truth, one verse at a time, here's grace to you Bible teacher John MacArthur. 
As we come now to the joy of examining the truth of God's Word, I ask you to open your Bible to Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, the first letter, chapter 5, and look with me at verses 21 and 22. We began two weeks ago to consider the truth of 1 Thessalonians 5, 21 and 22. We'll continue this morning and then again next Lord's Day. Let me remind you of its truth with a simple and straightforward reading. But examine everything carefully, hold fast to that which is good, abstain from every form of evil. This is a call to discernment. Examine everything carefully. Beloved, this is absolutely critical in the Christian life. Absolutely critical. The Christian life is the most precise life of all. It is the most disciplined pattern of thinking and conduct. It calls for exacting precision in comprehension, in deed, precision that conforms to an absolute standard revealed by God in Scripture. The Christian life is a life that pursues perfect and total conformity to fixed laws commanded and empowered by God Himself. There is no life so precise and demanding as the Christian's life because it not only calls for precision on the outside in terms of behavior, but precision on the inside in terms of thought and belief. We do not live a happy-go-lucky, catch-as-catch-can, freewheeling, do-as-you-will, do-whatever-feels-good kind of existence. The Word of God sets fixed demands for every area of our lives. There are no changing doctrines in Christianity. There are no changing values. There are no changing morals. There are no changing ethics. It is amazing to me, and I'm sure to you, to be watching over the last couple of weeks all of these major denominations meeting, the Methodists, the Episcopalians, and the Presbyterians, to vote in new theology, to vote in new morals, to vote in new ethical standards, to change the tradition of what has been believed in the past. And as one Presbyterian leader I heard interviewed on the radio said, if we don't change our morals to accommodate the day, we're going to lose all our members. In true Christianity, of course, there are no changing morals, there are no changing values, there are no changing ethics, and there are no changing doctrines. We are required to live in a disciplined pattern of thinking, and we are required to live in a disciplined pattern of conduct. And at the very foundation of this disciplined, precise kind of living is the necessity for discernment. We must be able to discern what is true from what is false. We must be able to discern truth from half-truth as well as truth from error. And when the church loses its ability to so discern, it therefore forfeits its precise theology, it forfeits its precise morals, values, ethics, and doctrines, and therefore abandons any hope of precise living, precise conduct. 
And when you look at Christianity today and you see it filled with immorality and a low-level commitment to holy living, you must understand that that imprecise kind of conduct is the result of imprecise kind of thinking, which is the product of an inability to make discernment work. Evangelical Christianity is in a severe state of confusion. It is not sure how it's supposed to act because it is not sure what it's supposed to think because it is not sure what it believes. Watered-down, diluted theology will fail to produce deep reverence, deep worship, deep repentance, deep humility, deep understanding of God, His nature, His work, His ministry, His laws, His standards, His principles. It fails to make people God-centered. The church today, caught up in relativistic thinking about doctrine, relativistic thinking about morality, cannot then come to precise living. Discernment, then, is crucial. Paul knew it when he put it in this little list. Starting in verse 16, he is giving us what amounts to a composite summation of the very cardinal elements of Christian living. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks. That deals with your attitude toward God. Don't quench the Spirit and don't despise revelation, prophecies which God has given, namely the revealed Word, and then examine everything carefully. Those are the components that are at the heart of Christian living. Paul then is calling us to something very basic when he says, but examine everything carefully. It isn't easy to do that. There are three reasons why. Reason number one, human weakness. Our minds are fallen. Our thinking is skewed. We are biased to be subjective in our own favor. We are debilitated by the indwelling, unredeemed human flesh, which has a propensity towards sinfulness. So we have to fight human weakness. Our mind is depraved. Secondly, we have satanic deceit. There is an ongoing onslaught against the church by the king of darkness, the prince of this world, and he is doing everything he can to confound and confuse the church. Thirdly, you have the overpowering, inundating influence of the ungodly world around us. Between the world, the flesh, and the devil, the process of spiritual discernment can be quite easily debilitated. And unfortunately, the church has fallen into chaos and confusion under this onslaught. It is unable today to discern true from false and good from evil, and that is creating imprecise doctrine, imprecise conduct. In fact, as essential as it is to precise Christian living, being discerning and discriminating is not popular today even in the church. If you take stands strongly on issues, you are looked down on. Now, that means that a call to discernment is appropriate. In calling you to discernment and helping expand and elucidate the truth of these two verses, uh, I want to ask three questions. The last two questions we'll look at next Sunday. Let's go back to question number one, which we discussed in our last study. Why is there such a lack of discernment? I've already showed you the influences, the weakness of the flesh, satanic deception, and the influence of the world. But why is it that the church has been victimized by this? What are 
the factors that have led to this lack of discernment. First, I'll review, and then I'll add some new ones. Last time, I told you the main contributor to this lack of discernment is a weakening of doctrinal clarity and conviction. A weakening of doctrinal clarity and conviction. There is today an assault on doctrine, and any assault on doctrine is ultimately an assault on God. It is an assault on knowing God truly and knowing His truth properly. Therefore, it is an assault on His character. It is an assault on worshiping Him accurately. It is an assault on morality as well. Churches today are not primarily concerned with doctrine as such. They are, for the most part, and of course there are exceptions to this, they are mostly concerned with making sure that whatever we are, we are loving, we are unifying, we are non-divisive, we are relational, we are non-confrontive, we are non-offensive. We want to be experiential, we want to deal with feelings and emotions, and we want to make people feel better about their life, we want them to be fulfilled and satisfied in their life, we want them to be comfortable. And so our dominant hermeneutic has to do with all of this. And I told you two weeks ago that the liberals couldn't sell us their theology, so they sold us their hermeneutics. What is hermeneutics? It's from a Greek word, hermeneua, which means to interpret. They couldn't sell us their theology, so they sold us their principles to interpret Scripture. Their principles are, you interpret the Bible in the light of what is loving, what is unifying, what is non-threatening, what is non-offensive, what is non-oppositional, what is non-divisive, what makes people feel good and comfortable and relational, what will bring them joy and satisfaction and happiness and self-fulfillment. And if you approach the Bible with all of those as the principles of interpretation, you're going to come up with a liberal theology. And so they sold us their hermeneutics instead of their theology, which they knew we wouldn't buy, but we're going to end up with the same thing. In fact, today you hear that relevant Christianity is not doctrinal. I saw an ad uh, for some church and a flyer this week, and it, it made the statement, are you tired of traditional church services? Uh, are you tired of, um, I, I can't exactly remember the specific words, of, um, of boring preaching, of, which is irrelevant? The assumption is that anything that is traditional, anything that is biblical, anything that is expositional is somehow not relevant. This is a fairly pervasive viewpoint. Uh, some months ago, a doctoral dissertation was sent to me by a young man who wrote it to complete his Ph.D. work, and he wrote it uh, on comparing my preaching to another well-known preacher. And his final assessment of me at the end of the section on me was, MacArthur is accurate but irrelevant. He speaks the truth but is not relevant. Now, I don't know how speaking the truth can possibly be irrelevant. Uh, the, the other side of it would be uh, to speak lies but be relevant. I'm not sure what that means. Irrelevance is associated with preaching the Word of God, with being dogmatic or speaking truth firmly today. So worship and preaching and conduct reflect this weak kind of doctrinal commitment. I can think of so many, many amazing trends in the last five to ten years. Even radio stations that once were eager to put everything we preach on the air now write us and tell us if you deal with this issue or that issue or this issue, we're not going to play it because it will offend some of our listeners and we want to be loving. We want to be loving too, but you speak the truth in love. 
Obviously, discernment isn't going to flourish in an atmosphere of fuzzy thinking. Obviously. Look at 2 Timothy for a moment, chapter 4. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, Timothy is solemnly charged with a pretty intimidating charge. He says, does Paul, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom. In other words, I want you to feel a lot of intimidation. I want you to feel a lot of motivation. You are being watched by God, and you are being watched by Christ Jesus, who's going to judge everything. And I'm telling you, Timothy, verse 2, preach the Word. Don't abandon that. You be ready in season and out of season. In other words, when it's tolerated and not tolerated, popular and unpopular, accepted and not accepted, you preach the Word. And how's it going to come out? It's going to reprove, it'll rebuke, and it'll exhort. And you just do it with great patience and instruction. That's the mandate. We're to preach the Word. We assume that we'll reprove people or convict them. We assume it will rebuke them or make them face the waywardness of their conduct and their belief. We assume it will exhort them, which is a word that means it will warn them about judgment and call on them to change their conduct. That's how we have to preach. Then in verse 3 he says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, will turn away their ears from the truth, and will turn aside to myths. The primary responsibility of any preacher and any pastor is to make sure he preaches the Word to his people and gives them sound doctrine. It isn't always going to be what they want. It is always going to be what they need. And when they begin to accumulate to themselves teachers who tickle their ears and make them feel good, who feed them what they want out of their own desires, they will turn away from the truth and they'll buy myths. Discernment will not flourish in an atmosphere like we have today which is characteristically described, I think, as one of doctrinal confusion rather than doctrinal conviction. There's a second cause I noted for you in our last message, and it contributes also to this lack of discernment. It is a failure to be antithetical, and it follows exactly along the first one. It it fails, this culture fails to to want to be antithetical. It, It doesn't want to debate. It doesn't want to be polemical. It wants to be relativistic. It, it, we, are, we are feeling the, uh, the inroads years ago of existentialism, uh, of subjectivism. People just want everything to sort of be on a wide spectrum of relativity. There are no black and white issues, absolute issues. But biblical preaching, teaching is absolute. It divides, it confronts, it separates, it judges, it convicts, it reproves, it rebukes, it exhorts. That's not acceptable today. That's not desirable today. It's a day for fun and games. It's a day to sort of dance over lightly every issue and make sure you don't offend anybody. It's not a day for debate. It's not a day for polemics. It's not a day to draw the line and say, here's the truth and everything on the other side is error. And obviously, in a relativistic day when there is not the desire to be antithetical, to put a thesis and an antithesis against each other and and see what is true, in a day like that, a day of doctrinal relativism, discernment is not going to survive. Look at Titus 1.9. In Titus 1.9, we have instruction for an elder or a pastor, and he's to hold fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, and he is both to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. It is mandated by God that we be antithetical, 
that we take issue with error. We must do that, or we do not fulfill our divine calling. But where that is not tolerated, where you're not allowed to be divisive, you're not allowed to say you're wrong, that is error, that must be corrected. Because the, the loving, unifying, relational hermeneutic dominates, discernment cannot survive. Thirdly, last time, I told you that another contributor to the demise of discernment in the church is preoccupation with image and influence as a key to evangelization. The church has bought the idea, the lie, that to reach the world, we must become popular with the world. We must be nice and inoffensive and accepting and accommodating. We need to make sinful people feel at ease. We need to make the church warm and embracing. We need to make sinners feel comfortable and, and happy and entertained. And if they like us, they'll like Jesus. Image and influence are believed to be more powerful tools of evangelism than the preaching of God's inspired and powerful Word. And obviously, discernment doesn't survive in an atmosphere of doctrinal confusion. It doesn't survive in an atmosphere of moral relativism. And it doesn't survive in an atmosphere of compromise with the world. And yet that's what the church is into today. It is accommodating everything it does to the unregenerate world, trying to win their approval, to win their approval, instead of being the light that turns on and reveals their sin it wants to be so dark that they can be with us a long time and they never really have to confront that. They can just enjoy how nice we are. Now, I want to be loving and I want to be gracious and I want to see sinners repent, but I know the only way that's ever going to happen is when their sin is confronted and they face the reality of their eternal doom. In 1 Corinthians, I pointed out to you, and I just remind you of a chapter 4, the Apostle Paul had quite a different philosophy of ministry. He said about his own ministry, we are hungry and thirsty, verse 11, poorly clothed, roughly treated, homeless. We are reviled, we are persecuted, we are slandered. We have become, verse 13, as the scum of the world and the dregs of all things even until now not popular with the world. The church has never sought to be popular, never sought to be influential in the sense that they accept us as we are, never thought that image was the key issue, uh, that our academic erudition was what won them over, or the entertaining quality of our services, or our non-threatening sort of loving, embracing tolerance. But that's the spirit today. Weak theology an unwillingness to be absolute in terms of doctrine and a preoccupation with our strategy to market the gospel to, to the world through image and influence and prestige has killed discernment. Now let me take you to a fourth one. Failure to properly interpret Scripture. Failure to properly interpret Scripture. You know me well enough to know that this has got to be close to my heart, and indeed it is. When I was in college, I had a great desire to want to learn how to interpret the Scripture. And I knew that there was a path to get to that. So my freshman year in college, I signed up for five units of Greek first semester and five units of Greek second semester. I took ten units. My second year, I took three each semester. My third year, I took three each semester. And my fourth year, I took two each semester. I graduated 
with all of that Greek background because I believed that if I was going to interpret, primarily my work would be in the New Testament, and I was going to interpret the New Testament, I needed to know how to interpret it from its original language. I went away to seminary, and I took three more years of Greek, and I took some years of Hebrew, and I studied theology, and I endeavored to discipline myself in understanding doctrine and church history and and background history and culture and philosophy and, and all of the things that I could learn in order to enrich and enhance my comprehension of the context and understanding of Scripture. And I have endeavored through the years to try to apply the things that I learned to rightly divide the word of truth. Being able to interpret Scripture is crucial, especially for one in my position, because James 3.1 says, stop being so many teachers, for theirs is a greater condemnation. And the one who rushes into teaching better realize that when you take the profile of teacher, you bring upon yourself potentially a greater condemnation, because now you are responsible not only for what you believe and affirm, but for what you have caused everybody else to believe and affirm who listened and believed you. There is a very, very exacting science in Bible interpretation, a very exacting science. Uh, Some of our men were telling me recently, they were talking to a famous preacher in America, and one of them asked him, what are you going to preach on this Sunday? It was probably middle of the week, and he said, oh, I don't know yet. I'm a Saturday night special guy. You cannot interpret the Word of God like that. It is not something whimsical. But you have today in the churches many preachers who do not pursue the discipline and the science of interpretation of Scripture. And as a result of that, what they do is go lightly across the top of things, preach relationally, sort of a quasi-Christian psychology or or tell a lot of stories, or whatever it might be. And as a result, they're not ever really interpreting the Word of God. And then you can add to that the reality that there is a sort of a new elevation of everyone to the level of an expert in Scripture. Everybody coming down the line seems to feel they can interpret the Bible. When in fact, unless they have sat under good teaching, or unless they are well read and have learned how to interpret the Scripture from someone who knows, it is highly unlikely that no matter how spiritually minded they are and how much they love Christ, they will be able to accurately divide the Word of truth. People who have inadequate training in the Bible but who have advanced training in some other field, somehow feel that they can just move over and interpret the Scripture. And then many folks just feel that because they're Christians, they can interpret it for themselves with little or no training and not having sat under careful explanation of Scripture so that they learn how to interpret by listening to those who do it. So we've we've somehow pulled everybody to the same level And everybody has an equal right to write books about the Bible and interpret the Scripture no matter who they are or how inadequately prepared they might be. Then you can add another problem that leads to this lack of proper interpretation, and that is that the charismatic movement, which is sweeping the world, basically says that you just uh, just read the Bible and somehow Jesus will tell you what it means. Somehow just it rises up from within you mystically, which eliminates the need for interpretation at all. By the way, virtually every cult and false 
teaching ever spawned was begun on the premise that uh, Jesus gave them some new revelation. This is a very frightening thing because it's so pervasive. And you hear people all the time, if you listen to radio or or watch the Christian programs on television, who come along and do these kinds of interpretations and talk about how Jesus told them this and God told them that. There's no need to interpret the Bible with that because it just comes from within you. Bill Heyman, for example, heads a network of charismatic prophetic ministries. He advises people to ignore reason, logic, and the senses when attempting to discern the truth. Ignore reason, logic, and the senses when attempting to discern the truth. He writes, I'm quoting him, Our traditions, beliefs, and strong opinions are not true witnesses to prophetic truth. The spirit reaction originates deep within our being. Many Christians describe the physical location of its corresponding sensation as the upper abdominal area. Do you hear what he just said? If you want to know truth, it comes by a reaction in your upper abdominal area. A negative witness with a message of no, be careful, or something's not right, usually manifests itself with a nervous, jumpy, or uneasy feeling. So, you read the Scripture, and then you wait for something to happen to your upper abdominal area. He goes on, there is a deep, almost unintelligible sensation that something is wrong. This sense can only be trusted when we are more in tune with our spirit than with our thoughts. What is that? Double talk. Nonsense. He further says, if our thinking is causing these sensations, then it could only be a soulish reaction. So mindless, irrational, senseless nothingness while you sit there and wait for an upper abdominal, jumpy, nervous feeling. And if it happens, then that's not true. You've got to come up with another interpretation. On the other hand, when God's Spirit is bearing witness with our spirit that a prophetic word is right, and you found the truth, then our spirit will react with the fruit of the Holy Spirit. We have a deep, unexplainable peace and joy, a warm, loving feeling, or even a sense of our spirit jumping up and down with excitement. This sensation lets us know the Holy Spirit is bearing witness with our spirit that everything is in order even though we may not understand it. In other words, ignore your mind, forget your beliefs, disregard your theology, reject your common sense, and don't ever take Tums. That will mess up the Holy Spirit's (laughs) process. Don't fool with your upper abdominal area because then he can't lead you. I, I, it begs language to even look for adjectives to describe such idiocy. Utter nonsense. You're not going to find that in the Scripture. We don't read the Bible and sit around and wait for some feeling in the upper abdomen to determine what truth is. Indigestion heart problems. That's ludicrous. 
that give you the same or even greater feelings. And yet, how many people follow that kind of advice? Millions. And then move their church membership over to that church and donate their life savings to that ministry. The price of charismatic mysticism and subjectivism is, is much too high. Everybody is free to do and say and teach whatever his upper abdomen tells him. The uniqueness and centrality and necessity to interpret the Scripture has been eliminated. So on the one hand, you have people who perhaps could interpret it, but they've opted out for Christian psychology and storytelling. On the other hand, you've got people who, who really don't have the tools to interpret it, but they're making a whack at it. And then you've got a third group of charismatics who are sitting around waiting for some feeling to tell them what's right. Is it any wonder why we can't discern the truth? Because we go at the Scriptures all wrong. The following letter was written to an acquaintance of mine from a young man in the charismatic movement. It illustrates this typical attitude toward Scripture. This is a letter, quote, The greatest experience in love I have ever had was at the foot of the cross as the blood of Jesus Christ poured out over me. He filled me with His Spirit. He brought me across the veil into the city of Jerusalem, into the Holy of Holies. There I beheld myself in Him and He in me. I received the baptism as by fire, and from this His love dwells in me. From this I have communion daily. Well, that whole paragraph is pretty mystical to me. I don't know what he's talking about. And I don't think he really wants the baptism of fire. That's judgment. But we can excuse him that uh, mistake for a moment and follow the rest of the letter. I do not feel the need for the study of the Scriptures. For I know Jesus as He has revealed Himself to me within, and as He dwells in me, there is the Word. Scriptures are a secondary source. You understand why people can't be discerning? Because they don't have a standard for discernment. You understand why people can sit down in those television talk shows and just continue to advocate bizarre things and wild things, and no one ever says, hold it, stop, that's wrong, not true, not in the Bible, can't be defended. No one ever says that because experience is the validator. The Reformers fought error with a proper interpretation of Scripture. Now in the 20th century, the church is going to have to fight the same battle, only this time we're not fighting the Roman Catholics, we're fighting the Protestants who have fallen into the same kind of patterns of ineptitude in dealing with Scripture. And the Word must be properly interpreted, and it will yield all necessary truth precisely for holy living, if rightly understood. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 2 for a moment, and I want to reacquaint you with familiar ground and enhance your understanding, I trust. In verse 15 of 2 Timothy 2, Paul says, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. That's very straightforward. Be diligent has been translated study to show yourself approved to God, a workman who doesn't need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. The implication of the verse is if you don't handle the word accurately, you ought to be ashamed. You ought to be ashamed. And if you don't want to be ashamed and you want to handle it accurately, you don't wait for some emotion in your upper abdomen. You diligently study for God's approval as a workman, a skilled craftsman, cutting straight the Scripture. This gives us, by the way, rich insight into the precision required in biblical interpretation. Remember this now. People do not move into false doctrine by design. I mean, they're not all saying, I want to find a false doctrine. 
I want to find a lie. I, I'm, I'm looking for a deception here. No. It isn't by design or by motivation that they err so terribly. It is by laziness, ineptness, carelessness, foolishness in handling the Scripture. Follow down into verse 17 and meet two people who here would be an illustration of this, Hymenaeus and Philetus. It says they are men, verse 18, who have gone astray from the truth. Now stop at that point for a moment. That little verb, have gone astray, means they missed what they aimed at. And the idea here is they were aiming at the truth, they just missed it. People don't come up with error because they're seeking error. People come up with error because in the process of seeking truth, they don't know how to find it. Or they don't make the effort. Or they don't appropriate the necessary elements. They missed what they aimed at. They may have had the right target, truth. They missed it. And they missed it. And they came up with a ridiculous thing. They came up with the resurrection has already taken place. Now, how do you sell that? You're going to tell people they've already died and been raised? You'd say, well, now, wait a minute. I know whether I've been dead and alive again. You can't fool me with that one. Sure, I can't. They must have come up with the fact that it was some kind of a spiritual resurrection. That the only resurrection there's going to be is a spiritual one, and it already was. Maybe they were the original annihilationists coming up with the idea that when you're dead, you go out of existence, soul sleep or whatever. Maybe they were saying that Christians have already had all the resurrection they're going to have and there isn't any future one. And that resurrection was a spiritual one. And you know what? They upset the faith of some. For every screwball idea, there is a following. Right? Especially in Southern California. Grow a beard, put on a bathrobe, go to the beach, say you're Moses, you'll have 50 followers in a half hour. (laughs) There's always a group to follow you. And it wasn't that they were aiming at error. It was they were aiming at truth ineptly, carelessly, lazily, foolishly. And they came up with error. And now you go back to verse 15, and he says, don't be like... Hymenaeus and Philetus, but you study and be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who doesn't need to be ashamed because you have handled accurately the Word. You need to have conscious integrity before God whose judgment is always accurate. A handler of the Word should never be ashamed because he didn't use all the resources and all the energy to do quality work and master the true interpretation. There are plenty of preachers, dear friends, who are popular with men, but ashamed to God. Popular with men, but ashamed to God. And any time that I would ever misrepresent the truth, I would be ashamed to God. Poor work in the Word is intolerable. It must be accurately handled, rightly divided. People say today, well... I, boy, if you, if you say this, and you say this guy's wrong, and that guy's wrong, and that interpretation is wrong... Uh, First Chronicles 16:22 Touch not the Lord's anointed touch not the Lord's anointed touch not the Lord's anointed Well if somebody's teaching error they're not the Lord's anointed We have to be faithful to the word of God It isn't the personal attack it's the preservation of truth Whether failing to interpret scripture accurately 
being preoccupied with worldly image, failing to be antithetical, whether a lack of clarity and conviction of doctrine, any and all of these things will literally kill discernment. How can we be discerning if doctrine isn't an issue? How can we be discerning if we're not willing to say this is right and this is wrong and get rid of relativity? How can we be discerning if we're trying to compromise to make the world comfortable? How can we be discerning if we don't even know how to rightly interpret Scripture? Two more in closing. Very brief ones. Failure to discipline in the church. Failure to discipline in the church. Beloved, here is a, is a really serious issue. And I want to just mention it briefly, but listen carefully to what I say. One exact point to mention. Church discipline. What is it? Confronting sin in individual lives. If your brother's in a sin, go to him. Go to him. Confront him. Try to lift him up. Try to build him up. Strengthen him. Try to get him to repent. Jesus said, if someone's in a sin, go to him. If they don't repent, take a couple with you. If they don't repent, tell the whole church. And if he still doesn't repent, put him out. Paul said, don't have a meal with him. Don't treat him like a like a friend in terms of accepting everything, but love him like a brother and pray him to repentance. Paul told the Corinthian church to turn him over to Satan and his body would be destroyed, his flesh would be destroyed. And chastening, the church must hold up a, a holy standard, a high standard. There are times when we have to confront sin. Two weeks ago, a member of our church took me with him to confront a sinning man who had left his wife and was living with a girl not his wife, and we were there waiting when he showed up at a certain place and said, we're here to call you back to holiness. And we want to pray for you and with you. If he does not respond, you'll hear about it because we have to follow that process. Now listen very carefully. When you discipline in the church, that means that you deal with sin confrontively you put a wall up between the world and the church. No question. You put a wall up between the world and the church. Because if you confront someone about sin and they don't stop sinning, you put them out. Maybe they're not even a Christian. But it keeps the wall very, very clear. Here are the people that are walking in obedience to the, to the Lord and here are the ones that aren't. And that wall of separation between the church and the world is crucial. But as soon as you stop disciplining sin, the wall comes down, the, the world mingles with the church, and you can't tell the difference. You can't tell the difference. The world feels comfortable. And you don't know whether you're dealing with believers or unbelievers. Why do you think the Lord killed Ananias and Sapphira in front of the whole church? Now today, any church marketing, church growth strategist would, strategist would say that was a foolish act for God to do because it gave the church a bad reputation. You know what the reputation of the church was? Don't join that organization because people die in there. The word went through the city like wildfire. Two people came to the offering and didn't give what they told God they would, and they're dead. Wow, stay out of that organization. How's that for marketing? It's like running a restaurant where the last two people that ate there died. How's that for publicity? You don't want to join that organization. People die in there. They're serious about sin in there. They're real serious about sin. You know, if, you're, if they find you sinning, they come to you and they confront you. And if you don't deal with it, they publicly speak about you. I heard about a church this week. As a two-year rule, one of their people said that 
someone coming into their church, living in a sinful situation, they were talking about a homosexual, um, they don't want to say anything for at least two years until the person, person feels very comfortable and accepted, and then they want to deal with the sin. You know what that tells me? If a homosexual can sit in a church comfortable and accepted for two years, that church hasn't said what it's supposed to be saying. I don't think a homosexual can come to Grace Community Church for two years, period. Comfortable or uncomfortable. He's going to say to himself, I'm getting out of this place. I'm not going to, I don't need to listen to this guy. Who needs this? Or he's going to repent. Well, I get letters, lots of interesting letters. Some even from homosexuals who just come one time and write me amazing letters about their anger and hostility and other sinners of assorted kinds as well. You tolerate sin in the church at all, and you've got to tolerate sin overall, and now you've destroyed the holiness of the church, and now the church can't be discerning. Where are you going to draw the line? You've already said you're not going to draw lines. You want everybody to feel all right. You want to tolerate compromise to the point where discernment and discrimination aren't tolerated. Look at 1 Peter 4. 1 Peter 4.17. This is as simple as it could be in terms of an understanding. It is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. That's Peter's way of saying, look, start to divide, start to separate, start to confront. Start to evaluate. Start to make judgments on people's lives in the church. You can't accommodate sinning Christians. And certainly, certainly if we're dealing with sin strongly in our church, because God tells us to, we're reflecting God's desire for holiness. And He says if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who don't obey the gospel of God? What Peter is saying is, look, if God wants us to be judging sin among ourselves, imagine how He's going to judge sin among those who reject Him. We can't lower the standard. We can't accumulate sinning Christians or sinning non-Christians. We've got to, we've got to purge and discipline and sift and purify and if God does that in His own church as a first priority, then what in the world is He going to do to the unbelievers? So if we preach judgment and chastening and purity to the church, we have to preach judgment and chastening and salvation to the lost. We have to confront their sin. Start that judgment in the church, He says. And remember, if God wants His church pure and He's going to judge the church if it isn't, what do you think He's going to do to the unbelievers. And then verse 18, amazing statement taken out of Proverbs. If it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? What does he mean by that? If we barely get in, if we barely get in, what do you mean by that? Well, we sin and the Lord chastens us, and it's tough enough being a Christian feeling the chastening hand of the Lord. If it's tough for us to make it because we keep stumbling into sin and God has to judge us, what is he going to do to the godless? We should be sending a message to the world. And you know what the message should be? The message shouldn't be, we're a nice place, you'll like us. The message should be, this is a holy place where we deal with sin. That's the message. Not this is a happy place. This is a holy place. This is a holy place. 
Not this is a place you'll like. This is a place you won't like if you don't deal with sin, if you don't come to the Savior, if you're not willing to live a holy life. No, the absence of church discipline, the absence of a high degree of holiness will kill discernment. Last point. One final contributor to the abysmal lack of discernment in today's church is spiritual immaturity. Spiritual immaturity. I'm convinced that many in the church have shallow knowledge of God's truth. Very shallow. And they follow popular views and feelings and experiences and they seek miracles and healings and the solution to the routine trials of life and they chase personal comfort and they want personal success and it's a very shallow kind of Christianity. And basically, we could call it baby Christianity. And I think it would be safe to say that that characteristic which is most descriptive of a of an infant would be the characteristic I call selfishness. Wouldn't you agree? They never say thanks for anything. And they scream if they don't get what they want when they want it. They're selfish. If anything characterizes the immature, it is self-centeredness, selfishness. Just look at the church today. It is utterly preoccupied with itself. It wants its own problems solved and its own comfort elevated. And it's not lost, as the hymn writer said, in wonder, love, and praise and focusing on the Lord. The church is selfish, and selfishness is an evidence of immaturity. The church is like a self-centered baby seeing the whole world needing to stop while their needs are met and their desires are fulfilled. There's no discernment in immaturity. Go back to Ephesians 4. I want to show you a familiar verse that you already know, but it makes the point. Ephesians 4.14 says this, We are no longer to be children. We're no longer to be children. Here's why. Children are tossed here and there by waves, and they're carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men and craftiness and deceitful scheming. There you are. Spiritual immaturity makes victims out of people. Makes victims out of them. They, they don't know what's right. They don't know what's wrong. They're yanked all over the place, blown all around. They're deceived easily. How do you change that? Verse 15, speak the truth in love so we can grow up. Verse 15, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up. How does the church grow? It grows under the truth, clear truth spoken in love. That's how it grows up and is built up. It talks about the end of verse 16, the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Immaturity just does not discern just like a little baby crawls along the floor, puts anything it finds in its mouth. No discernment. doesn't know what's good, what isn't good. We have such immaturity today and going with it, lack of discernment. And that is a direct result of shallow teaching, preaching, of the strange, bizarre, mystical kind of stuff that much of the church is exposed to in the charismatic end, of the sort of homespun stuff that comes out of people who perhaps are not properly trained, and of the storytelling relational kind of preaching that lacks real deep substance and foundational doctrine, which is essential for us to grow. One last text, Hebrews 5. And it cements this final point of immaturity. Hebrews 5. In another context, this principle here is certainly illustrated. The writer of Hebrews says to his readers in verse 12 of Hebrews 5, it's time you should be teachers. In other words, you've been around long enough, you've heard enough that you should be able to teach. 
But the problem is, instead of being able to teach, you have need for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness. He's a babe. You're babies. I can't, you, you, you've been around long enough to be teachers, but instead, I have to feed you milk. I have to keep giving you elementary things. You can't take solid food. You, you're not accustomed to the word of righteousness. The word, the word, the word. You get all this experiential stuff, and you accumulate a lot of stories, and you've had a lot of emotional feelings, but you don't know the word. And then in verse 14, solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Discernment and maturity go hand in hand. Discernment and maturity go hand in hand. Sitting under the Word, understanding the Word of righteousness, taking in solid food, engaging in spiritual practice, conduct, trains your senses to discern good and evil. So whether you're talking about the lack of doctrinal conviction, whether you're talking about image and influence as the key to evangelization, the the unwillingness to be absolute and this desire to be relative, whether you're talking about inadequate interpretation of Scripture, or whether you're talking about the absence of church discipline or immaturity, and they're all overlapping and intertwined, these things are the contributors to the loss of discernment. Soft on doctrine, we're not real sure what we believe. Don't want to be black and white, don't want to make issues. Want to be sure we compromise enough with the world to make them feel comfortable so we can win them over. Haphazardly interpreting Scripture, spiritually immature, we, we have no hope of discerning. And yet the Scripture says, Proverbs 14, knowledge comes easily to the discerning. Proverbs 14.33, wisdom reposes in the heart of the discerning. Proverbs 16.21, the wise in heart are called discerning. Proverbs 17.24, a discerning man keeps wisdom in view, but a fool's eyes wander to the ends of the earth. All of those out of the NIV. The undiscerning just wander all over everywhere, but the discerning is focused. Now, some of you are very discerning. You really are. About the food you eat, you get the box and you look at it and you read all that little stuff about how many grams of fat and how much of the daily required amount of whatever it's got. And you're very careful that you want to avoid any kind of pesticides and you want to eat healthy. You're very discerning about that. Some of you are very discerning about what investment you're going to make and you read all that stuff in fine print in the newspaper on the stock market and the investments and all that. You're good at discerning that. Some of you are very careful when you're going to have surgery. You want to find a doctor who knows the way in and the way out. And you're very, very careful. You pick somebody who's been analyzed carefully and has recommendations, and maybe you get a, another opinion. And some of you are highly analytical politically, and you can assess the issues of the day, and you can quote editorials from all kinds of national magazines, and you've got it all figured out in terms of the government and foreign policy. Some of you are absolutely unequaled as armchair quarterbacks. You can assess any offense, any defense. You can discern the whole problem of winning and losing. Some of you know the batting average of everybody and why they hit the way they do and how they do it. Some of you analyze things to the nth degree but never get around to using your analytical faculties. In the Spirit, 
and in the word to discern what is good and evil. How sad. And because the church is not discerning, it is being poisoned with a deadly chemical that looks like living water. Now, so much for question number one. How do you become a discerning person? That's for next time. Let's pray. Father, we pray that through this message this morning, we might be able better to diagnose the issues around us and begin to set our course to correct that. We don't want to be ashamed. We want to be like the noble Bereans who search the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. We want to be as discerning as they were. And we know that You've given us Your Word and You've given us Your Spirit and You've given us teachers who teach us, preachers who preach to us, skilled writers who write to us so that we can learn how to be discerning. And Lord, help us to be willing to come to convictions that are true and strong, to fight for those things, not to become a part of the drift. Help us to be willing to discipline, to pursue holiness. Lord, may we grow to spiritual maturity with our senses trained to discern good and evil so that we might honor You. You've given us all we need to be discerning. You've given us the truth, the Word, the standard. You've given us the Spirit to teach us. You've given us all our teachers to enrich us. And may we use all that is given us to be able to properly discern what is most important in life, and that is Your truth. And we'll thank You, Lord, for what that will accomplish in our lives and for Your glory in Christ's name. Amen. You've been listening to John MacArthur, Bible teacher with Grace to You. For free access to all of John's lessons and a listing of study Bibles and books available for sale, visit Grace to You's website, gty.org. And for details about the Masters University where John serves as president, go to masters.edu. John MacArthur and Grace to You reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available at gty.org and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating this digital file.
and I lost everybody. Like, I had Chelsea Clinton tweeting against me. I had friends. I'd love that. Deborah Messing from Will and Grace tweeting against me. I mean, I lost everybody. Well, she's on tour now in Australia, and I suspect she'll be continuing to make a living with her humor. Kathy Griffin, no longer sorry, so now what do we do? Okay, as I recall, she didn't sin against me. That's kind of what I remember. So I don't know that I need to forgive Kathy Griffin for anything. Nevertheless, now I look at it and go, okay, then there is a rift in our relationship. That is what happens when you have sin between two parties. Unless some sort of transaction takes place, there's going to be a rift that requires healing. And so to have a sin transaction take place, I am sorry, will you forgive me? Yes, I will. That is when it can start to heal and you can come together again. Kathy Griffin, well, she's just wrecked my relationship with her again. So now I don't have much of a relationship with Kathy Griffin as if I ever did. Are you happy now that we've talked about Kathy Griffin? You know, I couldn't be giddier. Yeah. I suspect, maybe, just maybe, if some people saw that interview in an Australian morning show, they, if they've got a memory like an elephant, might say, so, Friel, did you goof up when you said that you think that we Christians should just say, okay, you, you don't owe me an apology, but you gave one, so we, we say forgiven. Do you, do you regret that? No. She said she was sorry. What are you supposed to do with it? You don't wait. That's not how it works. Remember, when, when Jesus answered the question, how often should I forgive my brother? Seven times? Seventy times seven. Okay, there's no time that could take. If your brother sins against you 490 times a day, there's no time to see if they really, really meant it. They say sorry, you say forgiven. So I don't know, because that is the pattern, whether it is Kathy Griffin or somebody that you love. And as long as we're talking about really popular celebrities, okay, I honestly wasn't gonna, wasn't gonna, was not going to share this. Because I just went, yawn, whatever. But then I actually watched it. This was something, do you recall a few weeks ago, James Frankel? I, I think he's dating Kathy Griffin. I could be wrong. I get my celebrities very confused. He's an actor, and James Frankel, he's got some sort of YouTube show, and he co hosts it with some fellow. They were interviewing a Princeton professor, a younger woman. I, she looked like she was early 30s. And she was offering an explanation for why she believes that abortion should be totally legal. And I said, well, you know, James Franco's face, we all saw the still pictures. He's like, what? And like a screwball face, like, what? What? Are you saying? And we just let it go at that. Well, then I, then I actually listened to it. You have got to hear this. Yes, we're going to talk about abortion and um, early stage abortion. Yeah. Okay. Talk about it. Uh, All right. So, in some of my work, I defend a liberal position about early abortion. So, I defend the view that there's nothing morally bad about early abortion. Okay. So, a lot of people think, well, it's permissible to have an abortion, but something bad happens when the fetus dies. Uh-huh. And I think um, if a fetus hasn't ever been conscious, it hasn't ever had any experiences, and we aborted at that stage, that actually nothing morally bad happens. I see. So if the baby has never been morally conscious, you can go ahead and kill it. 
So if you happen to have a loved one in a hospital who is, uh, say, unconscious or sleeping, apparently we can kill. That wasn't the point of this. Same old, same old. But just listen to how this woman, I'm telling you, this, this, this is, I'm trying to think who talks in circles and says a lot of words but never says anything. Whoever that is that I'm thinking of is related to this woman. This view might seem unattractive because it might seem that it dictates a cold attitude towards all early fetuses. But what I think is that actually among early fetuses, there are two very different kinds of beings. So, James, when you were an early fetus and Elliot, when you were an early fetus, all of us, I think that we already did have moral status then. But we had moral status in virtue of our futures, in virtue of the fact that we were the beginning stages of persons. But some early fetuses will die in early in pregnancy, either due to abortion or miscarriage. And in my view, that's a very different kind of entity. That's something that doesn't have a future as a person, and it doesn't have moral status. Okay. Wow. I, I've thought this through, so I think I kind of know what she was saying. Because those guys lived, and they're, they're, the three of them are apparently successful then they had moral standing. Those who don't accomplish, apparently what they accomplish, don't have moral standing. Uh, Madam, where is that line exactly? i kind of like to know, because if somebody doesn't meet that standard when they're like 20 or 30, can we kill them then? Hold on. It gets worse. This is a question of how could we know. Uh Well, often we do know. So often if we know that a woman is planning to get an abortion and we know that abortion is available to her, then we know that that fetus is going to die, that it's not the kind, it's not a kind of thing like, like the fetuses that became us. It's not something with moral status on my view. Wow. Um, often we have reason to believe that a fetus is the beginning stage of a person, so if we know that a, that a woman is planning to continue her pregnancy, then we have good reason to think that her fetus is something with moral status, something with the, with the future as a person. You're saying, this is starting to get a little muddy here. Hold on. So it might look like, on my view, abortion is permissible because you have the abortion, but that abortion wouldn't have been permissible if you didn't have the abortion. Well, that's not quite true. That's not quite the view for, I think, two different reasons. So one reason is that um, even to... You have moral status, okay. and, that, and yep. in my view, back when you were an early fetus, you uh-huh. had moral status. Okay. But it's not that aborting you would have been wrong, no. because if your mother had chosen to abort her pregnancy, uh-huh. then it wouldn't have been the case that you would have had moral status, because you would have died as an early fetus. Uh-huh. So she would have been aborting something that didn't have moral status. So it's not, so my view isn't that if you do abort, abortion is okay, but if you don't abort, abortion would have been wrong. But what it turns out is that it's a contingent matter that you have moral status. You actually have moral status, but you might not have counted morally at all. If you had been aborted, you would have existed, but you just would have had this really very short existence in which you wouldn't have mattered morally. So it might look... That was fancier footwork than Floyd Mayweather. Here's what she just said. Because you're successful, James, you had value you had you had value as a fetus. But if you'd been aborted, you would have never actually attained that value, so it's okay to abort you. See what she just did right there? The circle kinda went unbroken. She concluded Another thing oh boy. that you were bringing up was the idea that 
in, that on my view, in aborting or taking away uh-huh. the moral status, yeah, right. that the fetus would have had moral status, but then by aborting, we take it away. Uh-huh. And I think that's the wrong way to look at oh, it. Okay. I think the right way to look at it is that just given the current state of the fetus, you know, it's not having any experiences, there's nothing about its current state that would make it a member of the moral community. It's all, it's the future, it's derivative of its future that it gets to have moral status. So it's really that the future endows moral status on it. And if we allow it to have this future, then we're allowing it to, to be the kind of thing that, that now would have moral status. So in aborting it, I don't think you're depriving it of something that it independently has. I see. That is the brilliant mind of a Princeton professor. Got that? It's the same old utilitarian view. As long as you can contribute, then we'll keep you. If you don't, we won't. What is that line? What is that standard? What a mess. Eugenics, it is alive and well. A pagan pontificating on morality. Sort of like the pagans in Houston that are claiming that the floods happen because of the sin against Mother Nature, and Mother Nature is paying them back because of the global warming business. Isn't that funny? They believe that Mother Nature is justified in pouring out her wrath by flooding a large area for their sins against her. But the thought of God the Father destroying the global world with a global flood because of their sins against him. Foolishness! Don't let anybody kid you. Pagans are as religious as anybody else. It's just aimed in the wrong direction. And wow, is it ever a moral mess. This, Tony, quit interrupting. This... Sorry. Is Wretched Radio. Thanks for listening to the Wretched segment du jour. If you'd like more Wretched, you can listen to the most current stream for free at wretched.tv slash listen, or you can become a club member and listen to our entire archive. Wretched, reaching the lost, equipping the saints, and strengthening the local church. My God is so big and so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. My God is so big and so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. My God is so big and so strong and so
Sure. 
old-fashioned Christian testimony, and who doesn't, then you are going to love the story of one Emile Swain from Living Waters. I got into the rap industry and actually got a producer. I mean, my producers produced some of the top artists in the industry. I was 15 years old, on my way to the big time. Ended up connecting with a group of teens there that were into the rap scene and at the same time into the gang scene. And they said, hey man, we're gonna make you part of our gang. But the term is jump you in. That's an initiation where you'll get a group of guys from the gang who sort of pummel you for a certain amount of time to actually use a stopwatch. And the immediate automatic kind of default response was, yeah, sure. So we did that, walked off campus. I remember getting initiated as a gang member, became a member of the Crips at 15 years of age. And uh, that really led me into a, a real spiral in my life.
mind was warped. I never understood that. I always thought my good had to outweigh my bad. But in the end, if, if somehow I was able to do enough good works, then maybe if they outweighed my bad works, then God would allow me to give them to heaven. I came to learn that salvation is something that God does. Uh, and through that, imputes to sinners his righteousness, something that we could never, ever earn on our own. That a Christian is someone who has repented of their sins, who has placed their faith in Christ, who has Christ as Lord in their lives. And then I remember just standing there with tears streaming down my face and crying out to God in repentance, sensing his presence there unlike anything I'd ever experienced in my life. And it was instant. I remember sensing like a a thousand pound weight had been lifted from my shoulders. And I was immediately transformed. I remember we walked out, we got in my friend's car, he turned on the same wicked radio station we used to listen to, and I look over at him and I say, hey, what are you doing? We're Christians now, we don't listen to that stuff anymore. He looked at me like, whoa, you know, you're crazy, what's going on with you? I knew then and there that nothing would ever be the same. But little did I know how far God was going to go in changing me. Little did I know that I would become a pastor. Little did I know that I would serve in an international ministry that is reaching millions of people around the world. And as I look back again on that moment of time, as I've been back to that same location, I've stood there and I've just thought, wow, the divine, gracious, merciful hand of God to do what only He can do for His purposes and for His glory. Testimony courtesy of the boys at Anchored North, Emil Zwayne, a former gang member, now a current church member. That is a magnificent testimony, but here is where we need to be very, very careful and not fall into one testimony ditch or another. So often we hear these dramatic testimonies, and we might be inclined to go, My story's not very good. I never shot heroin into my eyeball with a rusty syringe. Therefore, you might conclude, I don't need to share my story. It's not nearly as good as Easy's story. Oh, yes, it is. Let us not fall into the ditch of thinking that we have a little testimony because we didn't have dramatic sins or a profound story to share. Any time God takes a dead sinner and raises that person to new life, that is a dramatic testimony. So what should you share about your past? We want to be careful. We don't glorify sins. Talking about whatever it was from your past, let's make sure that they aren't salacious in any way. But you can share what you used to be like in your past life. And trust me, it's as bad as being a gang member or a crackhead. Were you, like me, pride-filled, arrogant, thinking that you were the single best thing in the universe? And that included God? That was I. Uh, 
I thought everybody should be underneath my feet. I was so spectacular. I'm amazing. If anybody should be the center of attention, it should be me, 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 me. How awful was that pride? And yet God, instead of squashing me like the bug that I was, he decided, I'm going to save you. And so he did. He sent his son to die for a pride-filled wretch like me. He forgave all of my sins of pride and vanity and presumption, wiped the slate clean, and even made me righteous because of Jesus Christ. That is what God did for me. Now that's just as profound, that is just as dramatic as as the crackhead story, is it not? What is your past life? Maybe you grew up a PK, so you didn't do any of those spectacular sins that we tend to go, oh, God saved you from that. Hold on, did you think you didn't need saving? That is called self-righteousness, and that is more odious than being a gang member in the nostrils of God. Self-righteousness, when you sin day after day and you do not think that you need a Savior, wow, that God sent one for you is an amazing story. Let us not stop telling the great dramatic, those stories that seem like, whoa, that's so amazing. The, the, the guy was involved in the sex trade and God saved him. We tell those stories because that's your story. But let us not fall into the other ditch of thinking that those are the only uh, dramatic conversion story because every conversion story is amazing. If you do not know how to help somebody who is struggling with emotional issues due to infertility, sexual abuse, miscarriage, self harm you will if you get tried by biblical counseling too the biblical answer to racism this is ken ham president of the ministry that built a full-size noah's ark near cincinnati Americans to rank different human groups and nationalities on an evolutionary scale of humanness. Now, the majority of those participating rank Mexicans and Muslims as less human than Americans. Proudly, bigotry and racism are still alive in the U.S. As Christians, we should have nothing whatsoever to do with racism. We are all descended from Adam and Eve. There's only one race, the human race. Every person on earth is related to one another. As the Apostle Paul says in the book of Acts, we're all one blood. Jesus came, died, and rose again for people of every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. Every person is a sinner in need of salvation that Jesus offers. Learn more about a biblical response to racism and the reconciliation that comes from the gospel when you visit AnswersRadio.com and get a transcript of this program at AnswersRadio.com. You got a
about talking to them and we walk away What will they think? Will they make fun? Where will they go in the time on earth is done? We gotta be the salt, we gotta be the light We gotta get a left go, we gotta get a right Trying to be sensitive has gotta send a mask Put on your armor and take one in the chest If you want a bad
was kicking it old school. I'm your host, Melissa Cantrell, and now here's some from Answers in Genesis. Soft tissue in dinosaurs? This is Ken Ham, president of the Apologetics Ministry of Answers in Genesis. When secularists write about us, they often describe us as a Christian ministry that believes dinosaurs lived alongside humans. They almost always mention dinosaurs. In their worldview, there's no way humans and dinosaurs lived together. Secularists declare dinosaurs died out millions of years before we came along. But have they really been dead that long? It's becoming common to find soft tissue in dinosaur fossils. Things like blood cells, proteins and collagen fibers have been found in a variety of fossils thought to be millions of years old. That conflicts with the belief that those fossils are millions of years old. Soft tissue doesn't last that long. The Earth, it's young. Want to discover more about dinosaurs, the age of the Earth, fossils, and more? Visit us at AnswersRadio.com. You can also sign up for daily insights from Ken Ham at AnswersRadio.com. Get social with Truth Be Told Radio. Check us out on our Facebook like page at Truth Be Told Radio. You can find our website at truthbetoldradio.com. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-E-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O dot C-O-M. Truthbetoldradio.com. Do you have any questions, suggestions, comments, or want to tell us anything? Send those emails to truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. Remember... By sending us your email, you give us permission to read it on the air. So write us at truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. If you'd like to read blogs, we've got you covered. Check out ours at truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. That's truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. Also, follow us on Twitter as truth, the letter B, then told radio. That is T-R-U-T-H-B. T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O. Once again, that is truth, the letter B only, not B-E, told radio. This is due to the restraints for Twitter's username link. Finally, to learn the testimony of Melissa Canchoa, the hostess of Truth Be Told Radio, see smilesandstuff.com. That's S-M-I-L-E-S-A-N-D-S-T-U-F-F dot C-O-M smilesandstuff.com So stay social with us and thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio.
that's it for Truth Be Told Radio. Go out with Yankee and Friends with the VR Billy. Bye for now. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.